Please stand and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to have a lot of New Testament readings from Revelation as we continue Zechariah, I do believe. So much resonance and imagery and the hope that has begun in these late Old Covenant prophets and brought to fruition in Christ and the vision uh, that he gives his Apostle John of the very end. Uh, So tonight we'll read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, please instruct us now through the scriptures. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So we pray that it would pierce through the dimness of our minds and the hardness of our hearts to, to soften us and change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. And now let's turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Begging your pardon. Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man 
Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Amen. You may be seated. I am planning very soon, possibly tomorrow, to begin construction on a long-anticipated project in our backyard, which is going to be a chicken coop. I may live to regret it, but I'm optimistic. I think this is going to be a great family adventure, having chickens. And when I go out there in the yard tomorrow, what do you think is the first thing that I'm going to do? First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go out there with my plans. I'm going to try to get my bearings on where to start. I'm going to bring out my tape measure. I'm going to bring out my tape measure and I'm going to measure off the space. Nine and a half feet long by three feet wide. Where the footprint of that chicken coop is going to sit. You may not know, this sort of structure is regulated by Ferguson Township. There are limits on how big your chicken coop can be. If you go over 144 square feet, well, then you bump up into a totally different tier of zoning regulations. And um, I don't want to do that. So chicken coops have to be less than 144 square feet. But that's going to be no problem for me. My plans show uh, just under 50 50 square feet. And I'll tell you something else. We are not going to have free-range chickens. Once I set those boundaries tomorrow with my tape measure and some concrete blocks, I'm going to be setting the destinies of at least half a dozen hens um, who are yet to be hatched. They're going to live out the vast majority of their lives in that little nine and a half by three plot of ground. We take very good care of them. We can give them everything that they need. But there are going to be some boundaries, right? They've got to stay in that space. We don't want them um, taking over the yard, much less the house. I don't want to indulge this 
too much longer. I know all this sounds a little bit trivial, um, but there's a reason I bring this up, and that is I hope it will help to set off by contrast something that I'm going to bring out from Zechariah chapter 2 tonight. I look at this chapter in three parts. Number one, expanding and defending the place for God's people. That's verses 1 through 5. Number two is going to be defeating the nations for God's people. It's going to be verses 6 through 9. And then number three is going to be gathering the nations into God's people. Verses 10 to 13. Okay, so expanding and defending the place for God's people. Defeating the nations for God's people. And gathering the nations into God's people. Okay, so first this expanding and defending the place. Uh, Remember, much of Zechariah contains these dramatic visions that God gave the prophet. Last week, we started by kind of sprinting through the first three. Actually, the four horsemen, the four horns, and the four craftsmen. You remember how in response to the four horns, those four symbols of the national power of Israel's enemies who had scattered them in the exile... In response to those four horns, God brings into the picture something unexpected. It's these four craftsmen. And so in response to that violent oppression from outside, what is God going to do? God is going to build something. He's going to build something. And of course, that's exactly what he's in the middle of doing historically in Jerusalem at this present time as Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying because the temple is under construction. So God, through his people, is building a dwelling place for his glory and his power to abide among them and to give them help and hope in a hostile world. Now, keeping that building theme in mind, then, along comes this young man at the beginning of chapter 2. And he has a tape measure in his hand. Not, a, not like one of our tape measures. Some ancient tool that does the same thing, though. It's called a measuring line here. And what he's going out to do is to um, figure out the dimensions, the measurements of the restored city of Jerusalem. So all these people are coming back from exile. They're starting to resettle this city and rebuild parts of it. And so the question is, well, what are its boundaries going to be? How big is it going to get or how small is it going to stay? This young man represents, you might say, the assumption that Jerusalem is going to be basically confined in a relatively small or at least measurable geographical area. It's kind of interesting, as you um, trace the Israel-Palestinian conflict today, you can find maps that show the varying boundaries of the modern city of Jerusalem depending on who has had military control at various points, what kinds of policies were in place during the various decades of the 20th century on into this century. So we talk about the city of Jerusalem, but what is Jerusalem? Um, Which boundaries do you go with? Which are the right ones? How do you know what's in the city and what's outside of it? It's maybe not so simple. 
But you see, Zechariah is being given a message that teaches us a different way of thinking about this. Don't preoccupy yourself with those artificial boundaries, uh, uh, physical like a wall or political or uh, on lines on a map or otherwise. Don't preoccupy yourself with those boundaries of that plot of ground anymore because God's plan for Jerusalem's future, <clears throat> God's plan for Jerusalem's future even now, is about something that far transcends any specific political entity or geographical spot on the map. Because the Jerusalem that the Lord wants to teach Zechariah to see is a Jerusalem without city limits. A Jerusalem without city limits. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. In other words, Jerusalem is going to have so many people living there that it's going to expand. Any walls that you could build, well, the people would, would overflow those walls. Jerusalem is just going to keep growing, expanding. And I think the direction, the trajectory, it, it's not all spelled out for us here in, in Zechariah. But the trajectory is set for us to imagine a Jerusalem far bigger than the geographical boundaries of any city. It's not just that Jerusalem is going to be bigger than ever. It's that Jerusalem is going to expand until you can't really describe it as a geographical city anymore. Why do I say this? Am I just making this up? No. This is because this is the image we get of Jerusalem at the very end in the book of Revelation, which shares a great deal of imagery, the Old Testament prophets in general and Zechariah in particular. In Revelation 21, we read part of it earlier. We could have gone on. I'll describe it now. If you go on in that chapter, the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth is described as being 12,000 stadia on each side. You don't know what a stadia, what a stadion is, but if you do the math and you compare it with the ancient measurements and how long they were, that's over 1,300 miles on a side. 1,300 miles is the distance between here and Houston, Texas. Okay? So we're not talking about a city at this point as we think of cities. New York City, Manhattan is dwarfed utterly by comparison with that new Jerusalem that John's describing in Revelation. We're not talking about a city anymore. We are talking at that point about a realm. A realm. And some have argued that since 12,000 is surely a symbolic number, as almost all the numbers in Revelation are, that the point at that, at, at that stage is likely, from John's point of view, that we're really to think of this new Jerusalem as expanding to encompass the whole new creation. This, the 12 being that number of completeness, the number of the 12 tribes, the whole people of God. You know, the, the, these 12s keep being repeated in Revelation. And so this 12,000 by 12,000 stadia, <clears throat> um, this new Jerusalem is expanded to fill the earth, essentially, is the message there. The whole new creation is the holy city, which is shaped, by the way, 
like the Holy of Holies of the Old Temple, a perfect cube. The whole world is being transformed into a temple dwelling for God with his people. Okay, now that's, that's Revelation. That's not Zechariah, obviously. And it wouldn't be fair to Zechariah to import all of that fuller revelation <coughs> from the New Testament back into his own frame of reference. But we're talking about the trajectory that is being set by the one Holy Spirit who inspired both books. This is where Zechariah is pointing us to an expanding Jerusalem, a Jerusalem bursting out of its seams, a Jerusalem bigger than God's people have ever experienced it before so that it cannot be held in by the boundaries this man may measure or the walls that the people might build. Now, a generation later, Nehemiah is going to come and he is going to build a city wall for Jerusalem. That is historically going to take place. And from that day to this, that particular earthly metropolis is going to have boundaries of some kind or another, often changing, but there will always be some boundaries in some fashion. So Zechariah is not predicting that in the near-term future, Jerusalem won't have any walls. He is pointing beyond Jerusalem's near-term future to the final future, to the last days, um, uh, traje- the, 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 the final end of all of this, that this present Jerusalem is symbolizing, is pointing God's people to, preparing them for, for both the future and the present. Zechariah is reminding the people, he's reminding them where their security really comes from which is not from a physical wall that they might build. And again, they will build a wall under Nehemiah with the Lord's help, and that's going to be good. It's part of the Lord's way of protecting them. But Nehemiah's wall is not ultimately what is going to keep God's people in or keep their enemies out. Nehemiah's wall is not ultimately what is going to keep Jerusalem safe. So I love the way that God goes on here to describe himself in verse 5 as Jerusalem's firewall. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. I don't know a whole lot about the IT world, but I love the word firewall. I love that our computers have firewalls. It's the greatest like, thing to imagine. I'm, not, I'm, I'm certain that I don't fully understand what a firewall does, but I know that it protects my computer against hackers, other malicious agents who might want to get into it. And um, as awesome as I'm sure the technology itself is for people who understand it much better than me, I, I keep finding myself to imagining like a literal wall of fire, which to me is kind of cooler to imagine. Um, and that is, of course, what Zechariah is teaching us to imagine here. He is evoking that mental image of a literal wall of fire. <clears throat> Not that there's going to be a literal 
wall of fire, but we are to think of that image of a, an actual wall of fire. So what should that make us think of then? A protective, ascending column of fire that's keeping God's people safe. Have you seen that anywhere else in the Bible? Makes think of, me think of is the Exodus. Think about this. After the people leave Egypt, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, thinks, oh, what have I done? I've let the slaves go. I'm going to go after them and bring them back. And their backs are to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is coming to hunt them down. Remember how after the people left Egypt, the Lord was leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is the way the Lord was revealing his presence to them and leading them on their journey. I love the part of the history in Exodus 14. When it's that night where their backs are to the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh is chasing them down and it says this, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel moved, not going before them anymore, he moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Doesn't that make you feel safe? Doesn't that make you feel protected, defended? Nothing can get through that wall of fire between you and the enemies of the people of God. That's what God is promising to be now. Not just one pillar between Israel and one specific army. God is promising in Zechariah 2 to be this all around his people all the time. A wall of fire to protect them. And not only that, but there's something even more. He is not only going to surround Jerusalem. But remember, he's also going to indwell Jerusalem. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. This is this amazing, beautiful image of God's presence with us. Even as we experience it today, now after Pentecost, you remember at Pentecost, those tongues of fire that descended upon the church with the mighty rushing wind, bringing that same presence of God, the same presence of God that the Israelites experienced in the pillar of cloud and fire that they saw in Mount Sinai with the thunder and the smoke that descended on that mountain. It's the same presence of God that came down symbolically at Pentecost to dwell permanently with the church for all time. See, right now, right now, we are living out the fulfillment of what Zechariah is looking forward to here. We are part of a Jerusalem without walls that encircles the entire globe. And our God, God the Holy Spirit, both surrounds us and indwells us at the same time. As his holy city, his holy temple, his holy people. He is a wall of fire protecting us. And he is the glory in our midst. So Zechariah pictures God expanding and defending the place for God's people. And that is exactly what God has done in Christ for the church through the Holy Spirit. I know that's a lot to take in. 
I know I'm making some assumptions here. I'm deploying a whole set of ideas about how we're to read the whole Bible and the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you have questions about it, talk to me afterwards. Get me started. Can't go into a lot more detail on this now, but I hope that I've um, at least given us a start for how to think of this idea of Jerusalem being inhabited as as villages without walls, the wall of fire around it, and the glory of God dwelling in their midst. Okay. Something, by the way, that the metropolis of Jerusalem in the Middle East has not experienced since this time. Um, Okay. Now, more briefly, verse 6. Verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Here Zechariah is envisioning the return of even more exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem, which did in fact happen. Um, The return from exile came in sort of waves or shifts. So this is another reassurance here that the exile is over. The time is now to come back to the promised land. Uh, North is the direction that you go to get to Babylon from Israel, and it's from the north that the people would have to travel to return from Babylon to Israel. Uh, So God previously had scattered them in judgment. Now he is regathering them in grace. So no longer are the nations going to plunder God's people. No, the Lord says, instead, he says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And the apple of your eye sounds kind of confusing. Um, it's the, the English translators rightly trying to preserve the more a word-for-word rather than idea-for-idea idea translation. But the apple of your eye, it simply means the center, what we would call the pupil of your eye. It's nothing fancy. Um, Benjamin took a little tumble recently while he was holding a toy. And as he fell, the toy kind of hit his face And afterwards, he had a scratch uh, on his eyebrow and the top of his cheekbone. But his eye was unharmed. Why? Because the Lord has designed our bodies to protect that vulnerable piece of our our anatomy, right? With with your eye socket and the hard bones of your skull with your eyes set back behind them. And it's not only your bone structure... But it's your instincts as well, right? Uh, what kind of milk makes you blink? It's pasteurized. Right? Um, uh, seriously, though, you, your instincts are to protect the apple of your eye, right? If something comes at your face, you throw your hands up. Of course, it's partly to protect your, your whole everything so important in your head, but your eyes in particular, you're going to throw your hands up. You're going to duck. You're going to get out of the way. These are your instincts to protect that vulnerable but precious aspect of your body. If somebody came up to you and tried to touch you on the eyeball, what would you do? You'd say, get away from me. Stop doing that. Don't, don't touch my eye. And if they tried again, you might get a little more aggressive in the way you reacted to them, or defensive anyway. 
Now listen again to what the Lord says about you. His priority to defend and nurture and guard you against your enemies. He says, he who touches you. Put your name there. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. What do you think the Lord is going to do if somebody tries to touch you, to harm you? Well, he says here, behold, I will shake my hand over them. Speaking of the the nations here, putting a little bit more back in the specific historical context here, these nations that want to harass and oppress and scatter um, Judah, those harassing, oppressing nations are going to become plunder for those who previously served them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. This is how zealous the Lord is to protect his people, how zealous the Lord is to defend us, to keep us safe. This is what true security looks like. This true assurance that we are going to be okay in the end. I want you to think about this. I want you to think practically, could this be a help to you? When you, when you start to feel that rising swell of anxiety in your heart, and it's threatening just to take over your mind and to throw you into a panic, and to consume you with fear and worry at night when you can't sleep, when you feel your stomach churning, because you don't feel safe and you don't know what's going to happen and you're afraid for the future. To to know that he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. That's the way the Lord sees you and treats you and keeps you. Could it maybe be a help to you when you're tempted to trust in something else other than the Lord? to count on something else other than the Lord to keep you safe, something that doesn't really have that power when you're tempted to break the law of God because you think you're justified because you have to do it because it's what you need for protection, security. But the Lord already treats you as the apple of his eye. He's already a wall of fire around you. Why would you need to be reduced to that kind of cowardice? Remember what Jesus said to the unconverted man, one of the commentators pointed this out, the man who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Is that what he said? That's what Saul, that's what Saul was doing that, right? He was persecuting Christians. But what Jesus said to him was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You mess with my people, you're messing with me. And I will come to their defense. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That's how Jesus sees you. That's how Jesus treats you. Because you belong to him, not just as property, not just as something over there on the shelf. Oh, yeah, that's mine, some of my stuff. No, it's like you're part of his body. He's going to protect as you would protect your own eyes. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much Jesus keeps you safe. So, so far, things don't look so good for the nations, right? Things look good for Israel, the nations around them, um, not so much. But, but that's only half of what this chapter has to say about the nations. Because now we come to verse 10, where it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations 
Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that, in that day and shall be my people. So immediately after this assurance that he's going to defeat the nations for the sake of his people, the Lord turns right around and gives an even better hope of an even more mighty and amazing way that he is going to overcome the hostility and rebellion of the nations um, not by destroying, for some of them, not through destruction, but instead by bringing them within the saving reach, the saving reach of his kingdom of grace. The Lord can do either one. Remember from our morning series, the Lord is glorified both in judgment and in salvation. And we get both sides of God's glory here. Some of the nations he is going to subdue in defeat. Others he is going to subdue in salvation by bringing them into the people of God and uniting them with Israel as part of his covenant. We've got to remember that the whole conversion and inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament um, through the ministry of the apostles after the coming of Jesus, we should not think of that as being somehow off script um, again, it's coming out of the blue. It was not a contradiction of the Old Testament. It, it's true, it confused the predominantly Jewish Christian church at the time. They didn't see it coming, but they should have, on the basis of the Old Testament. It was the plan all along. It was exactly what God had been promising, including here in Zechariah 2. It's exactly what God had been promising as one of the highest and grandest manifestations of his saving power that he was going to throw open the gates of salvation to every tribe and tongue and people. That in Abraham, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. They were going to be blessed through faith in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And of course, that's where we really can find ourselves in this passage, this is where we fit in to this story. What a mercy that you and I, as coming from the nations, get to experience God's power among the nations in the context of verse 11 instead of the context of verse 9. Experiencing his righteousness, as we heard about this morning, experiencing the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel instead of merely revealed in the law. Revealed in salvation instead of revealed merely in judgment. In salvation instead of destruction. And so we have to ask, how can that possibly be true? What could make it possible for us natural enemies of God to be, as it says here, Join to join ourselves to the Lord and to be his people. To have him dwell in our midst as his portion, as his dwelling place. The answer, risk of repeating myself, but I told you these, this morning these things don't go without saying, and they bear repetition. The only way this can be true is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
to the glory of God alone, as we're taught in the scriptures alone. And it is with the glory of God alone filling our vision that Zechariah leaves us in the wonderful closing verse of this chapter, verse 13, leaving us silent along with all flesh before the Lord because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling in awe of what God is getting up to go and do for the defeat of the nations and the rescue of his people. Do you know how many times in the Bible God's people are taught to pray, Arise, O God. Arise, O God. Many times. Go search for it when you get home on an online Bible or something. Search for the phrase, Arise, O God, and look how many times it comes up. And this starts, I believe, in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 10. When it says um, that whenever the uh, people of Israel broke camp in the wilderness as they were wandered through the wilderness, and they they started marching again. They were going to be on the move. And the priests uh, took down the tabernacle tent, and they started carrying the ark on their shoulders for another leg of the journey. It says this, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. People of God, I want you to understand that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have both of those prayers of Moses answered for us at one and the same time. Because Jesus Christ rose to our aid when he became man and accomplished our salvation through his life and death and resurrection. And now, from his heavenly throne, what do we have? We have a Christ who is rising to our aid now, who is fighting on our behalf now. Christ, our King, subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, like the Catechism says, and like this passage is teaching us. But we also have, at one and the same time, a Christ dwelling with us, abiding with us, returning to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Abiding with us even as we abide in him. As we have our life flowing through us as branches in the vine. So that we can bear fruit for his glory. See, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. It is having Christ our King arising to your defense. And dwelling with you and within you. And among you. And this is the Christian life in preview form here, then, in Zechariah's very mysterious, very exhilarating vision of God's expansive plan for the future of his people's salvation. There's something exciting to behold in this Old Covenant context, but it's something even more exciting to be a part of today, and for the everlasting future. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you for these wonderful visions. Thank you for not just telling us the truth, but for showing it to us. Such a 
picturesque and moving and exciting kind of way as in these word pictures, his visions Zechariah had. Or you didn't have you didn't have to reveal the truth to your people just this way through your prophets, but you did, and we're so thankful. This 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 texture of the scriptures that you've spoken to us in this way too. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us part of the Jerusalem without walls that is expanding even now through the proclamation of the gospel to fill the earth. We thank you that you are a firewall around us. And we thank you that you are dwelling in our midst, that you have gathered us in from the nations and that you will defend us from the world that continues in its hostility against you and us. And so we rest in you, we trust you, and we ask that you would help us to take these things to heart and call them to the forefront of our minds at the right time in the moment of fear in the moment of suffering, in the moment of temptation, so that rather than living out of our instincts and our fears, we would live out of these great gospel realities that you have brought to us in Christ by the strength of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.